I want to invite you to continue worshiping this God who we have gathered to worship this morning as we hear from and respond to the preaching of his word. Worship continues after the singing is done. And in order to help encourage right worship, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that you heard read, Exodus chapter 6. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can follow along. I will be preaching out of the New American Standard Version, one of the two in front of you in the pews. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and yet what we realize is that it's not this standalone second book. It really is a continuation of what began throughout the book of Genesis. And this morning, we heard an interesting portion of our passage read. We heard sort of the bookends of what we're going to cover today. And it was the same thing. The same thing that is recorded in verses 10 through 13 is recorded in verses 28 through 30. And so while that's the bread of this sandwich that we're looking at this morning, the meat is a genealogy. The meat is a list of names that span multiple generations of one particular family that we'll see. And perhaps you're thinking, oh boy, uh, genealogy. Um, because if we're honest, when it comes to these lists of names that we find throughout the Word of God, it's tempting to just either blow through them as fast as we can. It's tempting to just skip over them all together. Uh, not only because the names are difficult often to pronounce, but because there's this impulse within each one of us. This impulse is that anytime we look for a list or we look through a list of names, oftentimes we're thinking, where do I fit in? How do I find myself in this story? You see, when it comes to our history, we're riveted. We're fascinated. Uh, one of the uh, the largest interest right now is this uh, family lineage tracing, Ancestry.com. We're riveted by our story and the history of our lives. But oftentimes when we have to stop to consider the history of others, especially those that we don't know, it can seem like a waste of our time. And this genealogy in particular seems to be misplaced. It, uh, the more and more that I just continued to read Exodus chapter 1 all the way through up uh, through Exodus chapter 7, uh, there was just this, why in the world is this genealogy placed here? Like this would seem to belong back at the beginning of the book, where we begin to follow who, uh, whose lineage Moses is going to come from. The story's been building, and the story really is going to take off in many ways with the conflict that has been brewing in chapter 7. And so why take the last few verses to walk through this genealogy? How in the world was this relevant to the original reader? And is there any relevance to us, the modern readers? And maybe of particular interest this morning, the question that has consumed me is how in the world am I going to pronounce all of these names accurately? And just rest assured, that's probably not going to happen this morning. And so in light of these questions, I'm, I'm just reminded of our need to go before the Lord to ask for his help. But before we do that, I'm also just reminded of the good provision of God, the guardrails that expositional preaching provides for a church. If we're just sort of hand-selecting passages that we're going to preach throughout the book of Exodus, truth be told, I'm probably not picking this one. And yet, preaching through books of the Bible, not skipping parts, helps reinforce what we believe about God's Word, that it's all breathed out by God, and that it's all profitable for building us up, for teaching us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. And so if I could say it another way, 
This genealogy that we're looking at this morning is, is just as God-breathed as John 3.16. This genealogy that we're looking at this morning is just as profitable to your soul as Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so let's pray then to discover how these names will reveal to us a holy surprise. Our holy God, would you grant grace upon us as we gaze into your word? We want to understand it rightly. We want to apply it faithfully. We want to be changed by it completely. So Lord, I am in desperate need this morning of your help. By your spirit, would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached? For your glory, would you do this? And for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I can just remind us of where we're at, because I, as I said earlier, the question of why this genealogy is placed here, has, it, it, it consumed me this week. I, I, I don't understand why it, place, why it was placed here. I, by God's grace, I think I do now. But in chapter 1, let's just remember, quick flyby, chapter 1, God is multiplying his people and he's doing it in the harsh conditions of Egyptian slavery because Pharaoh feared that God's people growing in strength would be a threat to their national security. And so Pharaoh says, let's even put in an edict to kill their newborn sons. Chapter 2 then recorded the birth of Moses and this miraculous story how even Pharaoh's own daughter rescued him out of the river waters that would have killed him. Moses grows up, and Moses aspires to deliver his people, but yet he acts wrongly in doing that. He's not ready. His own people reject him. Pharaoh seeks, uh, seeks to kill him. And God brings him safely to the wilderness of Midian, where he gets married and he lives there for 40 years as a shepherd. And then in chapter 3, Moses is now 80 years old. God appears to him in the burning bush. And God calls him to this work that he had aspired to do years before, but he was not ready to do. God calls him to be the chosen instrument through which he is going to rescue his people from their slavery. Moses doubts himself. God persists. God even provides Moses' brother Aaron to help where Moses would feel inadequate. Chapter 4, God gives Moses these powerful signs to convince the people that this is the call from God. This isn't Moses' idea. Moses isn't just saying, this is what we need to do now. No, this is of God. And God says, I will, I will give signs that will attest to that message. And so Moses then returns to Egypt Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, we read that all of God's people, the people believed. This really seems to be turning into quite the rags to riches type story. The, the made for TV, it doesn't get any better than this type of story. Moses then makes his way to Pharaoh in chapter 5. And you're thinking, man, everything is just falling into place for this one who was miraculously delivered. Moses. And so Moses makes his way to Pharaoh in chapter 5, and in chapter 5, everything comes to a screeching halt. Pharaoh doesn't listen. In fact, he mocks Moses, and he mocks Moses' God, and he makes the slavery of the people even more difficult. And then in light of that, when it gets difficult for the people, the people then turn on Moses. And they say, why have you done this to us? And at the end of chapter 5, we can, you can just hear it in verses 22 and 23. Moses is dejected. Moses is discouraged. This is what he says. Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. I mean, this is rock bottom for Moses. It seems everything that was going so well has now just fallen off the tracks. And then we reach Exodus chapter 6. 
And it's in this place of utter despondency that God speaks to Moses. God speaks to him. God speaks and he helps Moses just see and to remember how it is that God works. And this is a good reminder for us, just to go back and read Exodus chapter 6, the beginning of it, and just be reminded that God's not afraid to allow things to get harder before he brings deliverance. That's not a threat to God. That doesn't jeopardize his goodness. It doesn't jeopardize his providence. It doesn't jeopardize his sovereignty. He's good in everything he does, and he accomplishes all that he intends. It, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For momentary light affliction is producing. It is producing. Like God is using momentary light afflictions to accomplish and work something out within his people. <clears throat> it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And that's what God does. God reminds Moses of what he has done. Those first few verses, the past tense. I, I did this. I appeared this. I said this. I spoke. And then he transitions to what he will do. Seven I wills. And so the scope here is God is saying, Moses, in your despondency, remember what I've done. Trust for what I will do. And he summarizes this at the beginning and at the end in the beginning of Exodus chapter 6 by saying, this is who I am. I am. I'm with you now. I did this in the past and I will do this in the future. And it's in this moment of God just speaking that Moses then sits down as he's retelling this story and he says, genealogy, here. And it's like, why? And it's helpful for us to remember, right? Moses isn't writing kind of real time. Uh, he's not writing in, okay, uh, I just went and spoke to Moses. Uh, I or I just went and spoke to Pharaoh. I just went and heard from God's people. This is several years removed. Moses is sitting down. He's standing outside of the promised land. He's not going to enter it because of his sin. There's a new generation of people that are beginning to question whether or not they can go in and overtake these large people in this promised land. And Moses is saying, how do I instill confidence in them? Let me write this account of all that God has done and all he's promised to do. And it's in this moment that Moses says, okay, I can't do it. I'm pleading with God, I can't do it. Everything's about to start. And then he says, I'm pleading with God that I can't do it. And in the middle of this pleading with God that I can't do it, we have a genealogy. And so let's read the genealogy to see if we can understand its role in the place of this account. The word of the Lord, beginning in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 6. These are the heads of, the fathers, of their fathers' households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin, and Ohad and Jachin, and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath. And Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemi, according to their families. The sons of Kohath, Amram, and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahali, and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites according to their generations. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, or Jochebed. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Izhar, 
Korah, and Nephag, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, the daughter of Amenadab, the sister of Nation. And she bore him Nadab, and Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, and Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's household of the Levites, according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Three reasons for this genealogy at this point in the narrative. First reason, this genealogy answers Moses' objections. This genealogy answers Moses' objections. Again, think about the context. What precedes the genealogy is God saying, Moses, go do this, and Moses saying, I can't do this. What follows the genealogy is Moses uh, God saying, Moses, go do this. And Moses saying, God, I can't do this. And so this, this genealogy then records God's command to Moses. And it records Moses' immediate pushback. Moses believes that he is unable to do what it is that God has commanded. It's not that Moses is opposed to what God is planning to do. It's that Moses doesn't believe that God can do it through, through the one God has chosen to do it through. There's a new generation of people that are primed and ready to enter into the promised land. And Moses is writing to instill confidence in them about God and his plans and his faithfulness. And Moses shows in this genealogy that he was wrong in his objection. I believe as Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing this, is Moses has put his objections at the bookends to show, and, and he uses the genealogy to show, I had no reason to doubt and to object to what God had called me to do. It's Moses saying God was right in his choice. It's Moses declaring God didn't pick the wrong man for the job. In fact, through this genealogy, we see that he picked exactly the right man, exactly the one that was meant to be used. Moses has yet again reminded God that he has chosen the wrong guy. Moses lists all the reasons why he isn't the best of choices, and this genealogy stands to correct that. You see, Moses is thinking, God, I am not impressive. God, you don't want to use me. Think about my past. But Lord, even now, I, I, have some, I have uncircumcised lips. God, I can't speak to Pharaoh. I can't speak on behalf of you to your people. It's as if Moses is trying to make clear he is not impressive. And yet this genealogy reminds us that the lineage from which he came from is littered with unimpressive people. Being impressive is not a prerequisite, Moses, for being useful in my hands. Covenant Life Church, being impressive is not a prerequisite for being useful in the hands of our God. I mean, we could just sort of flip through. Uh, the, the lineage begins, this genealogy begins as though it's going to walk through all of the sons of Jacob or Israel. And it begins with Reuben, who's known as Israel's firstborn. And then it goes to Simeon. And yet the whole lineage then stops. We only get to three of the 12 sons. You begin to see that this was really focused in on the lineage of Levi. 
But even going back, mentioning Reuben, if we were to flip over to Exodus or Genesis chapter 35, what we would find is Reuben has this ungodly sexual encounter with his father's concubine. And you think, okay, that's not, that's pretty unimpressive. That's messed up. Let's go then to Simeon. And if we were to read Genesis chapter 34, what we would find is Simeon and Levi become outraged at the rape of their sister, that they go in and they literally kill all the men in a city to avenge that injustice. You begin to say, wait, this, this is not who we're expecting. It's as if Moses is writing and just the lineage of where he's come from, he's being reminded that there's not this prerequisite of being impressive in order to be useful in the hands of God. We keep reading down and we read about Korah and his sons and Korah rebelled against Moses. Korah sort of one day says, why in the world should you have all the authority? Why should everybody follow you? I want to, I want to start my own uprising. I want to be my own leader. And the Lord in judgment opened up the earth and swallowed Korah. You're thinking, that's not impressive. It's impressive what God did. It's not impressive about Korah. And then you get to Amram, and Amram marries his father's sister. That would later be prohibited in the law. And even now, sort of getting this foreshadowed, while there wasn't anything that was uh, broken in terms of a law, you can see this is not, this is not how it's intended to be. In many ways, as we read through this genealogy and we begin to delve into the particular people that make up the lineage of these two who would be used mightily in the hands of God, it reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. You see, and in this moment, Moses is so consumed with his weakness that he feels like he's, he's not useful in the hands of the Lord. And yet, throughout the Bible, what we find is this is exactly who God uses. And Paul continues, not just in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, he talks about this I, I begged the Lord to remove three times that this thorn in my flesh would, this something that was causing, bringing about this weakness, this suffering. Paul says, Lord, would you please remove it? And this is what the Lord said to Paul, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. Said another way, you don't need me to remove anything from you because I'm everything that you need. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly then, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell within me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Almost every chapter in this letter of Second. Corinthians makes mention of Paul's weakness and it makes mention of God's great power and strength. You see, the presence of glaring weaknesses in our lives, it's easy for us to sit back far removed from Moses and go, Moses, bro, what are you doing? Like, why in the world are you questioning when God Almighty is telling you he's going to do this? And yet you and I, how easy it is for us to think that our glaring weaknesses sort of render us useless, that God cannot and God would not use one who is weak like me. And yet what Paul says over and over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is what Moses is coming to understand, that God has chosen frailty. He's chosen weakness. He's chosen unimpressive. He's chosen suffering. He's chosen those things so as to rightly display his glory. The things that you and I say, this makes us ineffective. God is pleased to say, no, no, no. Now my grace can be seen as most effective. 
That's the way of Jesus, brothers and sisters. Our weaknesses, our limitations are meant to make clear that the power of the gospel does not belong and reside within us. And so just maybe the thing that you're prone to cover up about yourself because you feel so weak, just maybe that is meant to be the platform that God is going to choose to display his power. And this is what Moses understood as he worked through this unimpressive genealogy. Church, just beware of your strengths. They're more dangerous than your weaknesses because they keep you from hoping in God's mercy. And Moses is brought to a place where he has to hope in God's mercy because he is utterly weak. And boast in your weaknesses. Boast whenever God lets you fail. Boast when God reduces the size of the army. God isn't withholding good things from you. In fact, he's holding out something priceless to you. This is what Hudson Taylor, missionary to inland China, would say. God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence upon him. And he will make you aware of your weakness so as to make you helplessly dependent upon him. And so why a genealogy here? Because Moses knew that his objections could be answered by just a simple tracing of this family tree. Choosing someone who is limited like Moses is what God had been doing all throughout the history of his people. Leads us to our second reason. Why this genealogy here? Number two, this genealogy establishes the pedigree of Moses and Aaron. This genealogy helps establish the pedigree just how qualified Moses and Aaron really are for this work. And so imagine you're walking in the wilderness, you're part of this younger generation, you're removed from the days of the Exodus. You've just heard the stories. You've heard how God moved, and yet you, all, your, all your existence has known is wandering in the wilderness, eating same food day in and day out. And you're beginning to think, when is God going to provide like he did then. And maybe you're beginning to think, and why in the world are we following these two dudes? Like, who are they? Like, who made them rulers? And, and at any point, do we just wake up and say, the more we follow them, the more we never get to where we're supposed to be going? Like, perhaps there was this, this, this suspect about Moses and Aaron. Well, the beginning of this genealogy appears to be the standard genealogy where he's going to go through, and yet, again, after Reuben and Simeon, the genealogy just stops. It centers on the lineage of Levi. And yet, what, we're, what we will find is that it's not really Levi that this centers on. If you look at verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi, and you have his sons, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. But then verse 17, instead of going to the next son of Israel, it says, now let's go and look at the sons of Gershon. Let's go and look at the sons of Kohath. And you begin to follow. Okay, wait. So Kohath had a son, Amram. In verse 20, we pick up then on Amram. This is getting deeper and deeper down this hole around Levi. Levi to Kohath, to Kohath, to Amram, Amram to Aaron, and to Moses. And then you just see in verse 25, and then Aaron's son marries. In verse 26 and 27, it's as if Moses is wanting to make clear, this Moses and this Aaron, whom this lineage is kind of weaving us into, and we really get face-to-face -face with these two guys. These are the two guys that God had called to do this work. So there's something in the winding lineage of these two people that were supposed to come face to face to just say, they are worthy of this, not because of themselves, but because God had chosen before the foundations of the world to use them. And this is how he got them there. And we could say that this really doesn't 
kind of focus in on Moses. It focuses mostly in on Aaron. Aaron is a worthy partner. The book of Exodus has already spent much time on Moses. But Aaron, not a lot. And so what we're seeing is Moses then is this worthy partner along... Uh, Aaron is this worthy partner alongside Moses. And this genealogy helps provide insight of just why he was the right one for this job. And the main thing that we would say is that Moses and Aaron are from the lineage of Levi. And if you keep reading, what you'll find is that the lineage of Levi, the sons of Levi, they were the ones who would be the priestly tribe of God's people. The sons of Levi would be the one who would stand in between God and the people. And again, you're just beginning to think, wait a minute, what did Moses and Aaron do? They stood between God and the people. And everyone who in the wilderness wandering around, whenever they heard that they were from the lineage of Levi, it would have made sense. Uh, we're going to see, the Bible is going to talk about how Moses was a prophet, but he wasn't just only a prophet. He also descended from the priestly tribe of Levi. And so what this means is that these two guys, Aaron and Moses, were qualified to oversee and to promote the worship of God in Israel. And Moses won't let us forget it. Over and over, Israel was redeemed. Israel has been a people who has been called. Make sure in all that you do that you worship God. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let us go so that we might worship. And among God's people, it was the priestly tribe that ensured that the people of God rightly worshipped the God who was worthy. The priests were responsible to oversee the tabernacle and to give instruction concerning worship and, and to preserve the purity of the worship of God. And that's what, that's what we see. This whole lineage is screaming to us. That Aaron and Moses are the right guys. Though there's objections that potentially they both have. We know that Moses has several objections. This genealogy is just serving to just remind us these are the right guys. If anyone should have been chosen to stand between God and his people, it would have been one from this lineage. They were true sons of Israel. Their, their heritage is traced back all the way to Jacob. They were the priestly line. Now here's the thing. You could train back in... In Moses' day, you could train or you could be called to be a prophet, but you had no choice about being a priest. You were sovereignly, you were providentially born into it. If you remember our story from Ruth, and it just so happened that Moses and Aaron were born in the lineage of Levi. It just so happened. Aaron and Moses were a part of this Levitical line. And so again, it would have reminded the people who were wandering in the wilderness that this was the right kind of men who should be interceding on their behalf. And so whenever Moses complains and he says, I can't go talk to Pharaoh, my own people don't even listen to me. This genealogy is a reminder, no Moses, you are a part of the Levite tribe. Your brother Aaron will be the chief priest, and that line is going to come from him. You are exactly the kind of guy that should serve as the intercessor between me and my people. You are exactly the guy who should be pleading on their behalf. And Moses finds himself in a place of doubt. And the Lord uses the likes of a genealogy to begin to erode that doubt to give him confidence. And so just to be clear, perhaps you've rolled in today and you've got a lot of doubts. It's okay to doubt what you can do. Right? I, I, I see Moses struggling. God, I can't do this. It's okay. I think it's natural for us to doubt what we can and can't do. But it's not okay to doubt what God can do with you. 
It's okay to be suspect of your ability to do what God is calling you to do. It's not okay to be suspect of whether God can accomplish what he's calling you to do. Moses and Aaron didn't know everything God would do with them, just like you don't know everything God will do with you. And yet Moses and Aaron didn't need to know, just like you don't need to know. They just needed to trust, just like you and I just need to trust. And it's so easy to look back and to, and to fault them. I, I've, I just found myself this week studying, just going, why in the world would you guys doubt? Why would you do that? Why, why, why? It's so easy for me to do that. I'm, I'm thinking, this is going to be a great moment. Just get back in there. Stop doubting. Just do what he says. And just the perspective that I have. I wonder what you might attempt right now if you had the perspective of another 40 years. What might you stop doubting and wrestling with God over and you would just trust and obey? If you had just 40 years to look back. Where might you be too fearful? Shrinking back from God's calling on your life to be obedient. This genealogy also includes women. Most Old Testament genealogies did not. Two of them are mentioned by name. Elishaba and Jochebed or Jochebed. And it's interesting. There's even one of the, the tribe of Judah. We have an unnamed daughter of Putiel who gives birth to Phineas. I mean, there's 10 verses on the sons and the grandsons of Levi, the family to which Aaron and Moses belong. Little is said of Moses. What's being conveyed is Aaron is indeed a true son of Israel, and his role at Moses' right hand was legit. He has street cred based on where he's from. And when you begin to understand this, you begin to go, wait, this genealogy is not disruptive to the narrative. It's critical for the narrative. It's not just, ah, why in the world did you take us on this detour, Moses? It's meant to instill confidence in us that these two guys who God is about to use in miraculous ways, they are unimpressive. And they actually are the kind of guys who should stand between God and his people. And that brings us to the last reason for this genealogy. This genealogy reminds Israel and us of God's patient and faithful providence. This genealogy reminds Israel and us of God's patient and faithful providence. One commentator, John McKay, puts it this way. He says, The narrative is interrupted by what seems to be, at best, peripheral details regarding genealogies. But in Israel's time, these details were of utmost significance. Because these details that's captured in genealogies helps shape their belief that God was shaping the events of this world in such a way that all of his plans and purposes would be accomplished. God's covenant promises just weren't to individuals, but they spanned to their offspring. And thus, this family history, we're standing on the cusp of God's people going toe-to-toe with the most powerful man in the known world, and you're just, perhaps you're tempted to think, is this the right, I mean, are these the right guys? Is this the right way to go about this? Has something gone awry? And the genealogy just reminds us nothing has gone awry. This is all part of God's faithfulness. But it's his patient faithfulness. He's taking time, not just to hurry up and accomplish his purposes. He's... He's molding and shaping a people who are best suited to accomplish his purposes. God is shaping history, and this genealogy reminds us of that. Genealogies really do reveal the greatness and the graciousness of the purposes of God. And it just underscores this commitment that God has made and this charge that had been given to Moses and to Aaron. 
It just reminds us in the midst of what in the world is about to happen. At this place of despondency, of being dejected, there's this shot of trust and confidence and hope because of this genealogy. It brings about this, God, yes, you are bringing this all about. You're working it all according to your good purposes and plans. It's just reminding them of who God is and what he's promised to do. Though it's been centuries of waiting. Friends, if you're prone to doubt whether or not God is good on his word, just because it's been days or weeks, maybe months, maybe years of waiting, your waiting doesn't bring into question God's patient, faithful providence. Do you believe that? The genealogy is here to encourage us to believe that, to trust it. We're meant to read the genealogy and just think, what kind of God is this meticulous about his covenant commitments to his people? I mean, this is a God who is incredibly committed to rescuing his people. Sometimes we think that God just sort of saves his people and perhaps he's casual about it. But generation after generation after generation after generation shows God is not casual about his commitment to his people. He's ruthlessly meticulous in his commitment. That means if you are a Christian, God is ruthlessly committed to your good. In all things, beginning at your birth, renewed at your conversion, and put on display for eternity when you get forever with this God. If you're a Christian today, when the gospel first came to you, it wasn't accidental. It wasn't incidental. It was deliberate. And God is committed to every single one of his children. And if you're here and you're thinking, I, just, I struggle with believing that God really does love me and, he, and I, I struggle believing that he always remembers me. Run to the genealogies. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> and be reminded of how he didn't stop at any point in ensuring that his love and grace found you. Run to passages like this. Admit your struggle and cling to the truth that God is committed to the salvation of his people. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says... We should learn to marvel at the patience of God. That's been my prayer this week. God, would you allow Covenant Life Church to just marvel at your patience? It could seem that it's taking a really long time, and perhaps we begin to doubt whether or not it's really going to happen. But may we just marvel at your patience. You know, there comes a time in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where this is what the Lord, uh, this is what Moses says. Moses says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Moses could not say that in the wilderness at Midian. It took him a while. God working his purposes in Moses so that Moses' heart could soar in Exodus 34 with the truth that God is compassionate and gracious and patient and slow to, to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Your waiting is not wasted. And you've not exhausted the patience of God. And you say, I got a lot of limitations. I got a lot of limitations. Well, in light of a lot of your limitations, you should still marvel at his patience. You should trust in his promise. You should believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And you should again get back to the joyful work of serving this God who loves like this. And the patience is seen. I mean, this genealogy is full of broken people. God is moving his plan forward through broken people. All of it looking back to the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. That there would be enmity between the serpent and the woman, her seed and its seed. He shall break you, or he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's this promise that a savior would come into the world and he would come through this through a woman. And then genealogies then are just rooted all the way back to Genesis 3:15. Where is this promised one going to come from? We wait for the one to come to make things right. And brokenness abounds in this family that we read these genealogies and our hearts maybe sink and we think where, like, where's the one who, who's to come that's going to be good, that's not going to let us down? Where are the ones that come where there's no intermarrying? And where are the ones that come there's no putting to death? And where's the ones that come that aren't avenging things and, and that aren't rebelling and ground swallow, swallowing them up? Like, where's that one come? When does he come? Broken past and messy presence do not cut us out of God's plan. He's been using that for all of human history. And the Bible makes clear there's not any of us who are whole. There's not any of us who are righteous. If God's plan was going to be contingent on people that were good and righteous and whole, His plan would have fallen apart. But praise be to God, that plan doesn't, it doesn't rest on you and me. It rests on him. And the plan that he put forth, he ensures that, he, that it will be accomplished and secured. He knows there's none who are good. So that's why in great kindness, he sends one for us who would be perfect. He knows that we have a debt, a ledger of sin that has to be forgiven and we cannot forgive ourselves. So he sends one who would have a clean ledger, no debt, in fact, would have a lot of righteousness in his account, and he would allow the transfer to happen through the sinless life of this perfect one, through the death as a substitute of this perfect one, through the bodily resurrection of this perfect one. Those who are imperfect can be made perfect. And those who are worthy of death and separation and eternal punishment, that can be cast onto this one who would come as a substitute. And that's what genealogies make us long for. We long for the day that we get to read about the one who will come, who will make it all right. And we read this genealogy in Exodus chapter 6, and it's not here. And yet this is what we know if we keep reading the Bible, that some 1,500 years later, that genealogy does come. God is going to keep even a better promise through another imperfect lineage to bring about not just great good for his ethnic people, but to bring about the greatest good for all of his spiritual people. The perfect prophet and priest and king would come. And if you know your Bibles, you would say, wait a minute, but that prophet, that that perfect one, wasn't he from the line of Judah? This genealogy centers on the line of Levi. Well, it's interesting. Exodus chapter 6, verse 23. Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Amenadab, the sister of Nashon. Amenadab and Nashon were of the tribe of Judah. Aaron marries one of the tribe of Judah. They then begin to have sons. Nashon, uh, Aminadab, the father, uh, uh, sorry, we get to Matthew chapter 1. And in verses 4 and 5, this is what we read. Ram was the father of Aminadab. And you're thinking, wait, Aminadab? That was Exodus chapter 6. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. 
and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And then you begin to go, wait a minute, this lineage is going to take us to the birth of Jesus. And we begin to see, oh, this is how the tribe of Levi gave way, came together with the tribe of Judah. And so when Jesus is born, where did he come from? He came from the tribe of Judah. If you're not a Christian this morning, I get to the end of the genealogy and I go, I don't know how to make the genealogy apply to you. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to you, but the genealogy that I've just preached this morning is meant to serve your soul by reminding you that there is a spiritual family that you were created to be a part of and yet your sin keeps you out of. And if it's, if, if it's based on your ability to get into that family, based on what you can do with your life, or based on sort of rolling the dice, hoping that the good outweighs the bad at the end, I just want you to know that is a terrible gamble. That you can get in on this family that is secured. On this family. Whom God is meticulously committed to. You can get in on that by turning from your sin and trusting in the work of this perfect one, Jesus, the Messiah who would come and would do for you what you can't do and who would die in your place and who would raise triumphantly from the dead. If you believe that that's your only hope, you can know life in this family. And I pray that you would give up whatever you're clinging to and you would trust in him alone. Behind every genealogy is the determined faithfulness and the joy-filled smile of God to save his people from their sins. And so maybe before all the fireworks begin to happen as Pharaoh and Aaron Aaron and Moses begin to square off in chapter 7. Just maybe before we get there, God wants everyone, including us, to know that the work that's about to take place is not owing to unimpressive people. It's my work. I got them this far, and I will be faithful to get them home. And if you're a Christian, that's your story. That God got you this far, and that he will be faithful to get you home. And so this morning we come to the Lord's Supper table. And we come not as just anybody who wants to come. We come as a people who have become a part of His family by repenting and trusting in Christ alone. 